You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. I got something I want to talk about to you. Welcome to Communication Mixdown on 3CR. I'm Judith Peppard, hosting the show this week, and a big thank you to the Climate Action Show for their great work today. 3CR is broadcasting from the stolen land of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation, true owners and custodians of the land from which we broadcast, and we pay our respects to elders, past, present, and emerging, and acknowledge that sovereignty has not been ceded. Today on Communication Mixdown, I'm speaking with Ramona Vigiarasa, the senior lecturer at the University of Technology Sydney Law School and the editor of Women's Rights Law and Gender Equality, Making the Law Work for Women, launched just a few weeks ago on July 29th. When I caught up with Ramona, I wanted to find out what brought her to her work on women and the law. I've had a long interest in in women's rights advocacy and I was really privileged to spend about a decade before joining the University of Technology Sydney working in civil society. I've worked in non-governmental organisations in New York but also the International Organisation for Migration in Vietnam and Ukraine and I headed the women's rights team at ActionAid International for six years. I think that decade of experience really enabled me to meet with very diverse women who talked to me about their experiences with the law. Many of those women shared with me how the law would often fail them. They were excluded from the protections the law was meant to give them, and they often weren't seeing their rights protected in legislation. So, for example, I met with women who were victims of domestic violence in Brazil, whose partners were drug laws, and they couldn't turn to the law or law enforcement for protection. I met with women in the floating villages of Cambodia who would speak about how often the hospitals they they wanted to visit were unregulated. Only two doctors served thousands of people. And at the same time, I've had the privilege of seeing how relevant this question of gender inequality and the law's role in either prohibiting discrimination or reinforcing it is as relevant to those countries as it is in Australia. And that really motivated me to revisit this question of the law and ask myself and in my research, can the law work more effectively to advance women's rights? You're the editor of International Women's Rights Law and Gender Equality, Making the Law Work for Women. How did the book come about? The book is the result of a symposium that took place last August called Making the Law Work for Women. That symposium was enabled by support from the Academy of the Social Sciences of Australia, who support researchers to have workshops on nationally important conversations like gender equality, that we could bring together experts from around the world who brought experience and skills on a range of different areas of law. So we had in the room, so to speak, because it was a a virtual discussion, experts on gender-based violence, on the environment, on taxation, on corruption, all of whom were bringing a gender perspective to different areas of law 
and asking within their own areas of law the question, is the law working as effectively as it can to advance women's rights? That symposium was held in August 2020, and the book is now available. You've all worked very hard, you as editor and also the contributors. Did you feel there was a sense of urgency about getting this book out? This book was being drafted in the post-Me Too evolution. Activists and scholars in an Australian context had simply had enough of the lack of accountability in government, in businesses. In that sense, this book is an urgent one. But I must say, as someone who's worked on these issues for a long time, I think many women around the world would say that the law is not as effective as we had hoped, especially after calls in the 1990s for law reform. Yes, and a number of authors in the book, and you yourself, refer to the International Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, or CEDAW, which entered into force in 1981. So I think that bears out what you've just said. It's also interesting that a lot of writers refer back to CEDAW. So I'm wondering, why is that convention so important? To me, the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women is a real treasure. It's a forgotten treasure in the human rights landscape. I just published an article in the Harvard Human Rights Journal, which is called Quantifying CEDAW. But at one point, I was going to call that indefensive CEDAW, because there are mixed views on the relevance and utility of the convention. You could almost say the academy is divided. So there are some people like myself who see a lot of value. And there are others who over its almost 40-year history question how much of a difference it's made in advancing the rights of women around the world. What's interesting about this convention is almost every country has signed up to it, minus a very, very small number, which means governments around the world have committed to putting into place the requirements that are set out in that convention. And yet for a whole host of reasons, you could easily identify countries where progress is slow and there's a lack of accountability for the commitments made in that convention. So there is a mixed sense of the value of the convention. I think it's important to acknowledge that. However, to me, the convention is very comprehensive. It's a living instrument because the committee members issue new statements on a regular basis. And it gives women activists and male activists in countries who are fighting for these rights something to cling to something to hold on to when they're holding their governments to account. One more point I would make about CEDAW or that makes it so useful is it offers a common benchmark across all countries. Women's rights is not about trying to perform better than your neighbouring country. We often joke in Australia about competition with New Zealand and New Zealand ranks much higher than Australia in a lot of the gender indices when it comes to women's rights. But the convention is about saying there's an ultimate standard and regardless of which country you're from, we need to obtain that standard for women. So the same standards apply to countries like Iceland as they do the Philippines or Indonesia. And it gives activists and people pushing for law reform a high-level standard to call governments to account. And I think that's where the convention's real value lies. And as Ramona points out, there are varying views about CEDAW, the International Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, but it also has its practical side. Ramona has applied it in the development of the Gender Legislative Index, or GLI. It's the basis of the Gender Legislative Index, which is an index I created at the University of Technology, Sydney, almost two years ago now. And the index uses the standards in CEDAW to create a set of criteria 
against which we can evaluate the gender responsiveness of legislation. You can take a piece of law, you evaluate it against the standards set out in the convention, and you can say whether that law is good or ineffective for women. And there's a whole lot of scales set out in the Gender Legislative Index with terms like gender responsive laws or gender regressive, whether the law meets international standards or shows a complete disregard for standards. In many respects, it's a tool that turns the convention now four decades old into something practical to create, to accelerate or catalyze accountability. I think one of the reasons why people have hesitated to see CEDAW's value is over the years, there's been many ways in which governments have been able to escape from accountability. And the Gender Legislative Index offers a tool to make much more visible when governments are delivering on the legal and policy reforms that they're supposed to. And you've trialled it, I think. I don't know if trialled is the right word, but you've certainly used it in a number of countries. That's correct. So the initial pilot of the Gender Legislative Index was in the Philippines, Indonesia and Sri Lanka. One of the reasons was I wanted to apply the tool to assess the legislative footprint of women presidents in those countries, which is the current book that I'm working on. I decided then to include a country in the global north because I think it would be wrong to suggest only countries in the south are struggling with women's rights. And so I've added a range of laws into the Gender Legislative Index from Australia. So we've now tested the index from four countries. I think that's really exciting. And uh, is there somewhere that it's been published, the results of applying the index? The results have been um, published in a few different places, but the index itself is a public resource. You can go and visit it in your own time at genderlawindex.org. All of the benchmarks used to assess legislation are available. And each law that's been evaluated is also available, including the evaluations and the reports of the individual human evaluators is also available. What's interesting about the Gender Legislative Index is that it uses machine learning to come up with an overall score for the law. And that's probably one of its greatest innovations. To me, the ideal would be to enable other scholars and other lawyers to use these tools to evaluate laws across a range of areas in other countries. And so being an open source tool was an important aspect of its design. And the GLI uses a scale from gender regressive, gender neutral, gender blind and gender responsive. So I'm wondering if you could just give some examples of what a gender regressive law would be. Thanks, Judith. I mean, to me, the the most obvious gender regressive law would be a law that criminalises abortion. So a reproductive health care service that women need that is denied to women. And there's a great chapter in international women's rights law and gender equality, abortion law reform in Kenya, Rwanda, Nepal and India. What's interesting about the scale, however, is that we can quickly slip into a gender regressive law even for well-intended laws. So, for example, in Sri Lanka, there's a law on gender-based violence that's meant to address domestic violence in the home. That law creates a provision that allows a judge to force a couple to undergo mediation, even in instances where there's been accusations of domestic violence. Now, that is a violation of international women's rights standards. International women's rights law makes very clear that a woman should not be forced into mediation where she's accusing a partner or a former partner of domestic violence. And so you have a law that's very well intended to be gender responsive, but with a very gender regressive provision embedded inside it. The other issue that's come up in the book is also who's interpreting the law? Who does the interpretation? How does the application work? Absolutely. And and implementation is really key. And I think we can't ignore what a struggle activists in this space have made to call for stronger implementation of laws. 
when they've done this, what's key to implementation is to make sure that the laws are backed by finance. You need resources to implement a law and you need monitoring. And to monitor effectively, we need data collection on how different groups of people, whether that's men or women or people who don't identify as either, whether it's people who are migrants from a non-English speaking background, whatever one's identity may be, we need data to understand how different people are experiencing the law to really monitor the law's effectiveness. I think what's really key still is getting the law right in the first place. That makes absolute sense. One of the things that you talk about in the book is intersectionality, the diversity of women and their experience of the law varies. Maybe to start, what do you mean by intersectionality? Intersectionality for me with the term coined quite a few decades ago, that acknowledges that people don't have one single identity. I am neither a woman nor a woman of colour. I am a first-generation Australian whose parents were born in Malaysia with uh, grandparents from Sri Lanka. I have a lot of diversity in my identity. And those multiple and intersecting identities will shape our lives. It shapes how we experience our lives and we certainly shapes how we experience the law. So the call in this book is to acknowledge that even though it's about making the law work for women. Women are a group with incredible diversity and you can take two women and they will experience a law differently depending on all of those factors. And the list of factors or identities goes on. It's not just about race or ethnicity, it's about ability, it's about age, it's about class and and so on. And if you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Ramona Vigirasa about the book she edited entitled Women's Rights Law and Gender Equality. Making the Law a Work for Women, which was published in July this year. And more on the book right after these messages. From every corner of the land, womankind arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Militantly, never you fear! Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio 855am and streaming live at 3cr.org.au Female identifying artists aged 18 to 35 are invited to enter the Ellen Jose Art Award, a $15,000 non-acquisitive award. Ellen Jose was a pioneer in Australia's urban Indigenous art movement and a radical activist and social justice campaigner. The award is given in the hope that it will support the winning artists' continued development by providing recognition as well as a financial boost. All six finalists will receive an artist fee and have the opportunity for their work to be professionally presented in an exhibition with an accompanying publication. The award is a partnership between the Ellen Jose Memorial Foundation and Bayside City Council. Entries are now open and close on Friday the 27th of August. Head to bayside.vic.gov.au and search for the Ellen Jose Art Award for all the details. A 3CR supporter. Love come your way What can I say You feel the
You're on 3CR. The show is Communication Mixed Down, and I'm speaking with Ramona Vigi Arasa, a senior lecturer at the University of Technology Sydney Law School and editor of Women's Rights Law and Gender Equality, Making the Law Work for Women. Next, Ramona looks at two specific chapters in the book, one by Heather Nancaro. There's a fantastic chapter by Heather Nancaro, who's just retired from her position as CEO of ANROSE, which is a research institute doing incredible work on domestic violence. And Heather's research really shows how Indigenous women have a very particular experience of law and law enforcement when it comes to domestic violence. And we're finding that women from the Indigenous communities are often labelled as perpetrators of domestic violence and not the victims by weak implementation, lack of training of police officers and the general negative experience or historically of interacting with law enforcement. I love the chapter in the book on environmental regulation by Rowena Maguire because she actually really centres her entire study around the scholarship of Indigenous women. And she shows us two things. We often talk about intersectional identity as a negative experience, that women experience the law a particular way or are harmed a particular way because of their identities. Rowena Maguire's chapter on environmental regulation reminds us the value of understanding people's identities and how that can expand the conversation and the knowledge around the room. And she draws on all this beautiful scholarship by Indigenous women such as Irene Watson and Professor Marcia Langton and Professor Morton Robinson who show us how when it comes to the environment we want to centre our conversation around caring for country, respect for the land and not about environment domination. You can understand intersectionality two ways, both the way it harms us but also the value that those different identities bring to the conversation and expanding knowledges. Before we finished our conversation, I asked Ramona about the provocation by U.S. Black activist and poet Audrey Lord. Lord famously says, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. They may allow us temporarily to beat him at his own game, but they will never enable us to bring about genuine change. Now, it could be argued that international women's rights law and gender equality is using the master's tools, the law, to make change for women. So I asked Ramona, what's the argument for doing this? I would absolutely say that the book does use the master's tools. We had such a tremendous debate during the Making the Law Work for Women Symposium precisely about Audre Lorde's work because we were grappling with decades of activism, challenging the legal system, and yet full knowledge that we aren't likely to burn down the master's house in a hurry. The legal system is a very ingrained part of societies, and not just in countries like Australia, but all around the world. They're a key institution of most countries. The question to ask ourselves is, do we fight from the outside, or do you work with the system you have to improve it? I think the jury is still out, but certainly as editor of this book, I believe in working with the legal system and I see a lot of value in the legal system in bringing about change. Law is a very powerful tool in shaping people's behaviours and practices and shifting cultural norms and practices. Historically, we've seen a change in how communities respond to practices like polygamy or even the sending of girls to school alongside boys just because the law requires it. And in recent times in a country like Australia, we've seen greater acknowledgement of the equality deserved to be experienced by same-sex couples because of the Marriage Equality Act. Social change brings about law reform, 
Law reform brings about social change, but the law's value must be recognised in that process. And so the book really is about saying, with the legal system that we have at hand, how do we make it work better? Where are the opportunities for law enforcement? Who do we need to persuade? And what are the best arguments to persuade them? So yes, it very knowingly uses the master's tools, but hopefully makes a case for how we can make those master's tools work much more effectively than they have until now. And you say in the book that you have not taken an abstentionist approach. What is that? I suppose it's like walking away and giving up on the system. There's an interesting quote in the book and in another chapter that's coming out elsewhere where we navigate through this question of when do you abstain from the system and walk away and when do you engage? And I think there are moments when you want to be an activist with a placard outside the courtroom and there are other moments when you want to get inside the courtroom and fight for someone's legal rights. And the same can be said around law reform and legislation. There are moments when you want to be really exploring the opportunities that political systems create for you to debate, draft legislation, and to give your view as a community member or as a legislator or a scholar or whatever it may be. And there are other times when you take the legal system as it is and you, you accept it for what it is and find the entry points, the ways in which you can better support those marginalised from the law. And so I suppose the answer there is to say we engage rather than walk away. Ramona Vigiarasa. And even though the book was only published a month ago, I asked Ramona if she had any indication of how it had been received. And the launch was tremendous. We had over 700 participants registered and we had over 300 come to the launch itself. We received nothing but accolades. So it was a, it was a terrific launch and a terrific conversation. So hopefully from here, it'll be a matter of getting their hands on the book and scholars and, and hopefully non-scholars reaching out and engaging with the conversations that we're trying to instigate as a result of the book's chapters and arguments. And thank you so much for making time to speak with us on Communication Mixed Down here on 3CR. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me, Judith. It's been a great conversation. Ramona Vici Arasa, a senior lecturer at the University of Technology, Sydney Law School, and editor of Women's Rights Law and Gender Equality, Making the Law Work for Women, which was launched last month on July 29th, and I'll put links to the book and also to the Gender Legislative Index developed by Ramona on the Communication Mixdown website. So, here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile? and adds a spring to your step. What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced, Produced by Yan. Luciano and Georgia Keats, supported by the Australian Queer Archive, present Queer Ways, retracing Melbourne's queer footprint. Queer Ways is a community art project that maps the queer history of Melbourne, combining our community's stories and voices, past and present, into a permanent, interactive record of being queer in Melbourne. Visit www.queerways.melbourne now to record your story in queer history and explore our city's untold history. Queer Ways, a 3CR supporter.
and we're coming to the end of Communication Mixed Down for today. But before I leave, I want to acknowledge the women of Afghanistan and what the return of the Taliban means for their rights. All of us will be listening for news about what's happening on the ground in Afghanistan and writing to our politicians, doing whatever we can to offer support. Stay tuned to 3CR because Eritrean Voice is coming up next, and I'm going to finish the show with Yadu, a beautiful song by Gugura Greek woman, Lady Lash, who hails all the way from Sedona in South Australia, now based in Melbourne. The sea, west coast to me. Some call her L, some call her Aphrodite. Falling from the skies, jamming her eyes. Breathing the air, holy sunrise. Rising tides, pearls to her knees. Water her essence, wild and sweet. Here gold, jewels from the deep. Eyes so blue, staring at me, rock the way. And the light of woman in you Rebirth the child, the earth, sun and moon To honor the dream time Our sisters and children Rock the waves, lady Move the haze, baby Stir the ocean, lady Curl the sea, baby Yadu
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.